All right, really quick, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to ask you a favor. If you like our show, it would be so excellent if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. It really helps people find the show, and it would mean a lot to us. Also, we'd love to hear some of your own travel stories, so if you haven't already, make sure to call into our toll-free hotline, one podbaby and leave us a message. We will definitely listen. Okay, here's the show. Yeah, there literally is a term called boat hack. And for a comic, if you call another comic a hack, I mean, we do that a lot. This guy's a hack. This is Jimmy Dunn. He's been a working comedian for nearly three decades. He's been on Letterman. He had a sitcom on CBS. But for 15 years, his main gig was doing stand-up on major cruise lines. He was, in his own words, a boat hack. You call a comic a boat hack, that is the ultimate insult. You know, in a comedy club, people come to see comedy. It's usually in a basement somewhere. It's dark. It's dangerous. You can say whatever you want to say, and they're there to see comedy. On a cruise ship, it's the end of the day. You're on stage at 11 o'clock at night. These folks have been partying in Aruba all day. Nana went jet skiing today, had prime rib, and she's four drinks in. And she's in the front row heckling it. That's that's the cruise ship audience, you know. If you want to get famous, if you want to get on television, if you want to even get an audition for something, you don't want to be on a cruise ship because you're in the middle of the ocean. Cruise ship comedy is really comedy for the masses, and it doesn't make you a great comic no matter how hard you try. Um, they still just want the buffet jokes. What you can do your best your best bit stuff you put on comedy albums and then uh, and then you can go hey we should all go back to our room and all flush the toilets at the same time and we'll shoot the boat five feet out of the water and they'll go oh he's a genius he just thought of that no I didn't think of it the second guy ever on a cruise ship thought of it and speaking of toilets during his years as a boat hack Jimmy saw every inch of these cruise ships the good the bad and the shitty There are certain room numbers that seasoned cruise ship comics know. And they go, oh, no, I'm not staying in that room. Just by the number. There's one on a very high-end cruise line that we all call the shit room because it's like where all the sewer pipes meet and go to the bottom. And you can smell it in that room. And you fight and you fight and you fight. But at the end of the day, you get off in seven days and then it's the next guy's problem. But obviously, it wasn't all awful. The pay was solid. And Jimmy did get to go around the world, literally, dozens and dozens of times. They have incredible things on the ships. But the best part about it is going to see different parts of the world. And so every morning, it was a different country. And I was in the best shape of my life. I walked probably 10 miles a day. And I just get off the ship with some money and a little backpack. And I would just go and just go explore it. He got to engage in some spontaneous adventures that most of us can only dream about. And even if the jokes were a little subpar, the stories he accumulated were anything but. So I love to surf. Uh, I'm on this island in the Caribbean. And sure enough, I see way out on the point, there's some waves peeling through. And there's one guy surfing out there, just one guy. And I paddle out to the point, he kicks out, paddles out next to me, sits down. I go, hey man, great ride. And he goes, Hey, thank you very much. And I go, you're Jimmy Buffett. And he goes, that's absolutely right. But you never saw me here. And I go, you got it. (laughs) 
And we went wave for wave for about an hour, and he couldn't have been cooler. And when he wasn't getting barreled with the mayor of Margaritaville, Jimmy actually picked up a fair amount of travel wisdom that he was nice enough to impart to us. Here's a couple of things I learned. No matter where you are in this world, if you see somebody in a parking lot or in a, on a beach with a half a barrel and they're cooking chicken, stop and get that chicken. Stop and get the chicken. It's going to be fantastic. If it's not, the guy wouldn't be there next week. You know what I mean? Here's another travel trip I learned. Whatever you really like to eat, put a picture of that in your wallet. So when you're in a country where you can't speak the language, you know, I had a picture of Foghorn Leghorn in my wallet for about 10 years. <laughs> Mr. Jimmy Dunn has a special on Amazon with fellow comedian Tony V called Two Boston Guys. And he wrote a book about his cruise ship experiences called, you guessed it, Boat Hack. He's the man. Check them both out. So by the nature of their work, comedians, or at least the successful ones, tend to be very well-traveled. They tour around the world, engage with audiences from all types of cultural backgrounds, and maybe most importantly, they're funny, so it's easy to listen to them talk about literally anything, travel included. On today's episode, we're going to hear from two of our favorite comedians, Eliza Schlesinger and Josh Gondelman. They have some very valid travel advice, observations, gripes, and cautionary tales to share. As my girlfriend and many, many people on Twitter have told me, I'm not funny, so let's get right to the people who actually are. I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. If you've been on the internet at any point over the past decade, you're probably familiar with the hilarious Eliza Schlesinger. She's a sketch show and several stand-up specials on Netflix, And over the course of the pandemic, she started a wildly popular weekly at-home cooking show on Instagram with her husband, Noah, who happens to be a chef. Welcome to episode 129 of Don't Panic Pantry. And today, we're making... A green bowl with skirt steak and baby broccoli. With skirt. So, uh... Steak. Uh... Yeah, come on, man. Don't choke. But before the pandemic, she spent a lot of her time traveling all around the world telling jokes. So she dialed into the show to talk travel tips, airport frustrations and why it pays to make friends with your flight attendant. Here's our call. How is it there? Like with COVID, like how how are your lives? Over the summer, it was kind of at some points when things were low and, you know, there was all the outdoor dining and, you know, we're all working from home. It was kind of great. But now it's just like we're back in lockdown and it's just like it sucks. That's awful. I've thought about New York the whole time just because it's such close quarters, so compact. You have nowhere to go unless you have like a house in Connecticut or something. It's not like in LA, there's still, you can walk around. You're not shoulder to shoulder with people. And New York has outdoor dining and weirdly, and this is so LA that it just doesn't. Like you'd think a city known for its weather would be replete with outdoor dining. And then this happened, it's like jokes on you. If you don't have a parking lot or want to eat on a sidewalk next to a dumpster, your restaurant's closing. And I'm just kind of like, why is al fresco like not more of a thing here? Like, why are we all sitting inside? Probably to get away from each other. Right. We do talk a lot on this show about how people lose all sense of time and place and decorum when they're traveling, especially on airplanes. Do you have any instances oh. of just really being annoyed by someone you're traveling with, with a friend or even, you know, a stranger, like a seatmate situation? 
I mean, let me say this. First of all, let me second your initial sentiment. I'll take it a step further. I was flying home. It was a very short flight. And I remember this because it was a military base in like Arizona. And there was a flight attendant who just had it out for me. I fly enough that like, you're not going to be an asshole. If you fly enough, like you kind of know what you're doing. I get on, I sit down and I, I was sitting in an aisle seat. It was a really small plane. And I put my foot kind of on the back of the armrest of the guy in front of me, like the part where his arm doesn't go. I've flown thousands of flights like that. You're not touching anyone. You're not pushing a seat. This flight attendant comes up to me. She goes, I need you to take your foot down. And I was like, what? She's like, take your foot down. And I was like, oh, uh, why? And she, it was just so odd because sometimes you're just like, they could be having a bad day and people make up rules. And I was like, okay. So I put it down. I'm like, I don't want to argue. Also, I had really long hair extensions at the time. And I think that's triggering for a lot of women. Like, who's this blonde hooker? Just checking a lot of boxes in terms of what blonde hair means. Because I couldn't figure it out. And then I started to fall asleep and my foot kind of drifted back up, just getting comfortable, like half awake, not thinking. Comes back over and she goes, do I need to get the pilot? And I was like, oh my God, like it was so weird. And I just go, get him because I think he's flying the plane and he probably has something better to do. I go to the bathroom, I come out, she's standing in front of the door and she goes, where's your final destination and what's your name? And I was just like, who, like sky police, like is it legal that you are just like harassing me outside of a bathroom? I'll never forget that. And I have like a slight mistrust of airline workers because of it. One time I was leaving Las Vegas and this was, it's the kind of like going to Las Vegas, everyone's pumped and coming out, like you escaped. You're not leaving. You've escaped. You lost everything. Like no one's pumped. The guy in front of me, the guy was in like all sparkly Ed Hardy, which will give you an idea of like what year it was. He smelled as if you had taken diarrhea and like warmed it in a microwave and then put it in like a dirty fish bin and just let that bake in the sun. It was deliberate. It was like he had shit himself and then that shit burped. Like it was, and it smelled so bad that the people, he was a couple rows ahead of me, people complained and the flight attendant before we took off came up and said something to him. And you could tell that this guy knew he smelled and thought if I can just get through this flight, she, within three seconds, he popped up. He was like, yep, okay. Like he knew he was wrong. <laughs> Absolutely, I know. I smell like, like, a, like a turd, got it. And uh, I asked her, I was like, what do you do with that? She was like, we have a shower facility in the airport and he can get on the next flight. But like the guy knew, he was like, if I could just make this everyone else's problem without anyone saying anything. Kudos to him for being so compliant. That's awful. Would you rather be the smelly guy on the plane or the person who has to smell the smelly guy on the plane? You know, would you rather inflict that on other people or be the one to deal with it? Uh, I don't know, because maybe I am that. Maybe I farted and I'm like, no one knows. And the guy behind me is choking, you know? So at some point in life, aren't we all the smelly guy and the smellers? Aren't we all ever taking turns? My biggest annoyance at any airport and the traveling process altogether is boarding the airplane. I feel like people just revert to their most base instinct and it's a herd mentality and it's totally awful. It's awful because people choose not to listen. Like, look, people just hover And they're like boarding first class and zone one. And some guy comes up, his boarding pass says 12 cargo. He's like, are they boarding us now? I'm like, yeah, they always board 
the very last row first before any diamond medallion members. You totally have flown before. And it's not a cultural thing. It's more of a just people kind of pretending not to listen. There is definitely like a lawlessness to it. I always go out of my way to be super nice to the person checking us in because that person is not having a fun time. Nobody likes them. And it's really weird. Sometimes you get on a plane and like, it's this symbiotic thing where everyone hates flying. And so they pay it forward to the airline workers who then are just so tired of dealing with your shit. So you never know like who threw the first punch. So I always try to be like the passenger that almost wasn't there. I always walk on. I always say, good morning. Because I'm usually like first one on the plane, second one. It's rare to get a good morning back. Like they're already in panic mode. Uh, so sometimes I'll like hold my dog up and be like, morning. And then they're like, oh, an angel. <laughs> People love dogs. So I try to do something to like be a little nicer and stand out. That way, if the plane crashes, they'll hand me a life jacket first. Yeah, they'll, they'll look for you and say, hey, that woman had her dog. And she said, good morning. That's true. I've actually made friends with um, airline attendants and then have gone out with them in the city like that night. That's a little weird. Is it weird? That's a little weird. <laughs> so we talked a lot about getting to places, but you know, through your stand-up, you've been to a lot of different cities around the country, around the world. In terms of doing shows, is there a city that you look forward to in terms of audience? And is there one that you maybe dread, like that you know that, oh shit, I always go there and I always I have a bad show for some reason? No, it's not that. If I've signed up for the city, I'm looking forward to it. Like obviously, like Lincoln, Nebraska is not Bright Light's big city, you know, but... I'm really lucky in that I have my fans. They come out to see me in every city and they come in all shapes and sizes and colors. And so I've designed my life in a way that I look forward to every aspect of the travel. I meet my feature act hunter, like we meet and then we go to the airport and then my tour manager meets us. Like it's all this sort of well-oiled machine. I love playing Detroit. I love the grit of this Midwestern city, but it is always, this has happened. I did a show in Detroit a while ago. I don't remember how the show was, but I remember... I took an Uber to the airport and my Uber driver starts ranting at me about his ex-wife and she's a bitch and he owes child support and his kid's got a problem. Like just telling me a lot of problems and I'm like, okay, this is making me like a little uncomfortable because he's so like angry. Gets pulled over by the police for like speeding or something or like a missing taillight. All I'm thinking is like, please don't let me miss this flight. The Detroit airport is like so far outside of nothing. The cop is talking to him and you're just like, what do you do? It's your Uber driver. I can't get another Uber on the freeway. And then I finally get to the airport. I'm like running with my dog on my shoulder. And then it was like, oh, we're having a mechanical delay. And I'm like, I don't want to be here any longer. Like it's, this is too many things. It's like after hours. It felt, my. I was holding my breath because I think we had like taxied out onto the runway and we had to come back like two times. It was like the end of Argo. Like I was just holding my breath until I felt wheels up come into the plane. I could not relax. When you go to these cities, do you get a chance to like go around and explore a little bit or is it just like in and out, boom, boom? Both. And we really try to, I mean, there's a couple of hours. It's a weird thing I always talk about with like, as a comic, you are ready for lunch when most people are like closing their restaurants. Like, let's say you fly in, so you land like noon, you want to take a nap. You have like one to four hours before a sound check or before you got to go to the venue or before you got to take that other nap. And so we try to get out there and see the city, but not in an exhausting way. You know, you don't want to be like at a water park. We always do map out local restaurants, local coffee shops, not like chain restaurants and things that are special and that are specific. And we always try to buy the merch and support local businesses. Um, 
And then, you know, by just being whatever level celebrity people want to show you around. So in Australia, we got to go see the kangaroos. And then in Japan, I had a fan who was running like a light exhibit. So we're specific about the invites that we take because you don't want to end up dead, I guess. But we try to do something to say we saw the city, even if it is just going out after and walking around and eating and just kind of getting a sense of it. Because I take a lot of pride in being someone that has really seen the country versus just the inside of a hotel and like a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Not bad. Hey, don't don't rip on Ruth's Chris. So, you know... It, I'm going to. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, they're our main sponsor. No, they're not. Um, there's definitely an art to the weekend trip, the 12-hour layover. I mean, you were just kind of talking about it. Do you have a preferred method of making the most out of your time? I think it just depends on who you're traveling with. I tend to be more adventurous when I'm by myself. When I travel to Europe, I do a lot of walking. I walk, you know, miles and miles every day. I go to every museum. I visit every castle. There's something meditative to being alone and just absorbing things by yourself, eating alone, stuff like that. And I I enjoy that as well. And, you know, as a woman, you have to always take into account your safety. I have found sort of a low-key hobby. It gets a little bit harder I hate to say the more famous I get, but it is true. Where I, when I was playing Europe, first time I played London, it was at this small theater in Soho, and I would just sit outside after, and I'd meet people, and I just kind of would drink with them. And then one girl would say, like, hey, tomorrow we're doing this. Do you want to come? And you become friendly with them. I'm still friends with them on WhatsApp. And then this last time that I was in Scotland, sometimes I'll just send out, like, on Instagram, like, hey, what's the coolest thing to do? And you get into chats with people, and it's usually women, and... I found one girl, I was like, do you just want to eat dinner? And we just ate dinner together. And she was a comic. And then I made friends with a girl who was a travel writer. And I went to Glasgow to visit her. And um, I was in Sweden. I met up with two random girls who were like in their 20s. And we played pool and we went to a bar together. Like there's a, there's something very sweet about it, if you're safe about it, to meet people, meet locals, you know, talk to everyone. And it's so specific to just that trip. Like it's like in a vacuum. You don't know if you would have met them otherwise. Yeah, see, you said I was weird before when I was talking about befriending the flight attendants. What's the difference there? The difference is I hadn't said this part of the interview, and I take it back. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Well, also, here's the thing. You want to remember, just because you ask a local what's up doesn't mean they know. Like, my husband is a chef and a travel writer and all this stuff, and he was like, don't always ask the concierge where to eat. You know, they may not be into food, so trust Yelp, trust Thrillist, trust local eating guides, things like that. That's true. Sometimes you do ask and they're like, oh, there's a great Ruth Chris's Steakhouse downtown. That's where in, we go. In the lobby. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> Eliza, was yeah. there one place that you visited that, you know, you maybe thought wasn't going to be so interesting or so cool? Maybe you had like a preconceived notion of what it was like. And when you went there, it just totally blew you away. We did the Southeast Asia tour like two years ago. And one of the stops was Kuala Lumpur. And I had no context for Malaysia, other than sometimes your shirts say made in Malaysia. The crowd was lit. And they, of course, they speak in English. I mean, you have to be speaking some amount of English to want to see the show. Cultural barriers aside, like they were just so down and I was just blown away by how receptive they were. Do you adjust your set at all or do you just go in like you would in any city in America? 
At this point, people are very much coming to see the act because of you, because of me and like what they saw on Netflix. The act is never the same. Like even if you saw me two different nights at a theater in America, it wouldn't be completely the same. So a good comic is able to adjust and pivot. And it's not about, you know, not speaking your truth, but like some terms they just don't have there, you know, or like they don't say bachelorette party in some countries. They say Hindu or they say something else. And so you can make a joke out of it, but sort of being, or there are references that they just don't get because they don't have it. So you might tell a joke and it might go flat. So the your objective should always be, how do I roll with those punches and how do I tailor the act so that I'm still being true to myself, but that we're getting the laugh from them. So for people who don't follow you on Instagram, uh, first off, big fucking mistake. Can you talk about the Don't Panic Pantry, which... <laughs> is just absolutely delightful, I have to say. So we're like a week into this quarantine, which is super weird. And I, my husband's a chef and I obviously, and me, and I said to him, let's do a cooking show. Now, I don't have a love for cooking, but I was like, it'll give me a way to connect with fans and entertain, and it'll give you a way to entertain people. And we will be conveying this message of stay home and cook with what you have. And so we called it Don't Panic Pantry. The idea being, use what you have. Don't panic. If you don't have an apple, it's okay. Use a pear. You know, I don't know how you got a pear in March, but okay. And we did one episode a day for, I think, like over 100 days. And now we do it twice a week. We just aim to create something for ourselves that would help other people. I mean, it is the Wayne's World of cooking shows. Like, it is on my Instagram Live, and we do it on Facebook. But we have some amazing sponsors who signed up to do it, and... People cook along. My husband gets to work on recipes. We got a cookbook deal because of it. Or he did. I didn't do anything. So it's a great example of, as an entertainer, being able to pivot, go with the flow. Entertainers got to entertain, so that's what I did. And check out Don't Panic Pantries. Yeah, Mondays and Thursdays at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on my Instagram Live. I love it. I love the realness of it. It feels like we're in your kitchen, which in some ways, you know, we kind of are. Uh, in 100% of the ways, we are. I don't wear makeup. It's not like, like I'm just kind of like, look, I sometimes, you know, I have melasma and I have a zit and like, I'm not trying to be a runway model. I'm just trying to be here with my husband, give him a hard time and make you an omelet. If you guys could have access to one celebrity's kitchen to do the show in, all access, who would you pick? Um, Noah. Noah. If you could have access to one celebrity kitchen, who would it be? I pick Nancy Myers, even though she's not a cook, but Nancy Myers. What'd you say? He said Nancy Myers too. <laughs> for those of you that have ever watched a Nancy Myers movie, the whole reason you watch is for like the like plush vanilla furniture and the beautiful kitchen. And I heard in real life, hers is even more exquisite than the ones in the movie. So just to exist in that space. I love that. Yeah. Well, cool. So, Eliza, this was awesome. Thanks for coming on and talking about travel, um, sharing some tips, talking about what you're doing. Really appreciate it. Nice meeting you. Bye, Will. Thanks, guys. Follow Eliza on Instagram to keep up with all her new projects, including the Don't Panic Pantry. There's a link in our description. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Josh Gondelman is a stand-up comedian and writer. He's worked for John Oliver and is now the supervising producer for Jesus and Marrow on Showtime. He's also known as one of the nicest people in the comedy world. And apparently, sometimes his willingness to trust people has led him into some 
unusual situations, like on a cross-country road trip he took in his early 20s. I'll let him take it from here. When I was 24, I was an unsuccessful stand-up comedian and a preschool teacher. I took a month off from my preschool job. I took a, a preschool sabbatical, which is they don't let you do that. No one does that to like publish an academic paper on like different colors of blocks or whatever. I took a month sabbatical to drive cross country with a friend. We started in Boston and we drove down to Texas and then up the West Coast and then back across, just like zooming across the country. And it was about four weeks total. But when we started heading back from Seattle, we got waylaid by an unexpected blizzard. And it was to the point where we thought we could probably keep driving for a while. Like we had a few more hours we wanted to stay on the road that day. It was, you know, 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. And we were planning to keep driving until like nine so we could make it east at the pace we wanted to. But it was snowing and snowing and snowing. As we were about to pass this town in Montana called Deer Lodge, Montana, there was like a state trooper in the middle of the highway physically waving everyone to take the exit. Like, human barricading the highway. And we see, like, a little diner right away. So we pull over, we think we're gonna game plan there, just figure out what's next. And so we pull over, we're sitting in the diner parking lot, and this is, like, just at the beginning of the age of smartphones, more or less. So we were pretty well equipped. We're calling all the little motels in town. Everything is full, chock full. So we're like starting to get a little nervous. We're like, what do we do? We're in a strange town and we don't know the area. So the phone rang at the diner and they pick it up and the person behind the counter is like, it's for you and hands me and my buddy the phone, which is like so terrifying because how did the person calling know who we were and that we were there? How did the person who picked up know who we were and that they were talking about us. It was very unnerving. I mean, this is like very dated, but I remember 15 years ago, occasionally you'd walk by a phone booth and the phone would ring and I would always pick it up. And I'm like, well, whatever is about to happen is going to be exciting and probably it will bring us close to death. And it's someone who had heard us talking about being from out of town and they say, oh, there's a shelter set up in the church. And if you want to go, that's like probably your best option tonight. So we're like, okay, I guess this is the move. So we're about to leave and find the church and camp for the night. And a couple who had just walked out of the diner walks back in and and they're like, probably, I'm in my mid-20s. My friend's in his mid-20s. The couple seems like they're probably mid-30s, late-30s. And they come back in and they go, hey, um... No pressure. But if you don't want to stay in like this in the church with like a hundred other people, we're staying at the motel right across the street. Come crash on the floor. And we're like, okay, well, this is definitely how we get murdered. No doubt about it. This is a classic murder setup. But it did seem more appealing than getting murdered <laughs> in a church around a bunch of other people. So, although I don't know why, there would have been witnesses at least. So we're like talking over, we're like, this is a bad idea, but like, let's go. So 
they were like, oh, well, give us a few minutes. We're going to stop at the liquor store and pick up some booze. And we're like, all right, maybe they're just inviting us for like a quaint Montana orgy. So we go across the street. We bring in a bunch of blankets to their hotel room. And it's like early evening by that point. You know, coming from the East Coast, living in New York, living in Massachusetts, people are just so much more guarded. And I'm a pretty open person. Like I'm a pretty wide-eyed Pollyanna of a grown man. But like this was off-putting because I think when something like that happens, I feel like you get this idea of like, this was in the South, but like the idea of Southern hospitality or like, come on in, stranger sit a spell like that you would get in like Montana, Wyoming, you know, the big sky country. It feels like you might get that kind of hospitality. But I think what that felt like to me was them being like, we're so much more confident that we can murder you than you will murder us. That it was like, we have like hunting bows and bowie knives like under our mattress just as a matter of living in Montana. And so nothing you can bring into this hotel room will be dangerous to us because we make a living by like chasing down deer on foot and breaking their necks with our bare hands. So we bunked down there. We just like set up blankets on the floor and it's like a weird vibe but not bad. Like, it's not an orgy vibe, for sure. So that was, like, a relief. But it was a little weird. And I think they knew it was a little weird. And we're just flipping channels on the little hotel TV. And they, for some reason, settle on to catch a predator, which is the Dateline show, right, with Chris Hansen, where they would entrap would-be child molesters and then send them to jail. So we're watching to catch a predator and they're getting pretty drunk. Like they didn't get like a sixer of beers. Like they got a sixer of beers and like a bottle of gin that they're just drinking. We're like, man, this is weird. And then it's like one of the predators that was caught was a rabbi and that really bummed me out. I was like, oh man, this isn't a good look for my people. I'm not a rabbi, just the Jews at large. They're also telling us, like, quaint Montana trivia. Like, you know, Montana's a free-range state, so if you hit a cow with your car and it breaks your car, you owe the farmer for the price of the cow. And I'm like, okay. So then it's, like, 10 o'clock, but it's, like, blizzard 10 o'clock and winter 10 o'clock, and they're like, well, time to turn in. So they turn out the lights, and Kristen one half of this couple, Kristen and Scott, says, oh, Scott, you should tell them. And we're like, oh, well, this is where we find out that they're like, and the price for this hotel room is we cut off your middle finger and we just mail it to somebody just to prove that we're initiated into like a Montana gang or whatever. He goes, if you wake up in the middle of the night and I'm screaming... Don't worry about it. I have night terrors. So that just happens a lot. And we were like, yeah, all right, sure. Yeah, if you wake up screaming, like, we won't sweat it. We're going to be cool as cucumbers. Meanwhile, on the inside, I was like, if you wake up screaming, I'm going to wake up peeing my pants and running out of this hotel into the blizzard just to take my chances, the shining style, out of doors. So we go to sleep. We wake up at like 8.30 or 9 the next morning. They're gone. 
they just like somehow left without us knowing. We have no way to contact them to thank them. We're like, was this a dream? <laughs> Were they ghosts? What was this? So we get up and we leave and the, the roads are kind of like miraculously clear again and we just keep going east. And that was like, in retrospect, that wasn't the thing to do at all. That's like not how I should have behaved. But like in my mid-20s, I was just like, sure, we're saving money on a hotel for the night. We don't have a lot of cash to spare on this trip. We don't have to like sleep on cots around 40 strangers, 100 strangers or whatever. This sounds best case scenario. And now I'm like, oh, I'm I'm lucky I'm alive. I was so dumb back then. Josh has a very funny book out called Nice Try, and he has his own podcast, Make My Day. Check them both out and follow him on Twitter at Josh Gondelman. All right, we're going to take another quick break, but when we get back, we'll wrap everything up. Stay tuned. All right, so before we leave you, I just want to drop another reminder about our travel story hotline, one eight three three pod baby Call in, leave us a message detailing your wildest travel story. We're going to start playing some on the air here, and uh, even though I don't know you, I would love for you to be involved. Also, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and give us a review. Wherever you listen to podcasts, it really helps us out, and we always appreciate the feedback. We also appreciate the team that made this podcast happen. Producers Jake Rasmussen and Mia Fask, editors Dean White and Abby Austria, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Dan Byrne, Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, and from iHeartRadio, Mangesh Hadakudor. You've made it to the end of the episode, so I will leave you with a fun fact. Scott and Kristen were right. Montana is a free-range state. And in Montana, there are actually more cows than people. So really, they always have the right of way. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.